Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Guess who is the richest family in the United States worth over a trillion dollars? And whatever your guess is, it's probably not who you think. Guess also all the many ways the rich and wealthy hide their money, whether they're new rich, whether they're foreign corrupt rich and they're trying to get their money into this country, or whether they're dynastic rich, meaning generational wealth. So I talked to the heir of the Oscar Mayer fortune. Remember Oscar Mayer wieners, the the hot dogs? Four generations later, Chuck Collins inherited some money and essentially gave it all away. But in the process, he found all the ways in which the rich hide their money. And he describes it in detail to me. Let me just ask you, I'll start off. You, you, you wrote this book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And I was amazed at all the different techniques. I've, in a small way, experienced a little bit of this, but no other people have experienced it quite a bit. Let me start off by asking, and you mentioned this in the, in the book, but when you first heard that you were going to inherit, you probably always knew you were going to inherit money. When you first heard how much, what was your reaction? I think I was a little bit um, shocked. I actually wasn't anticipating anything. I thought, well, my parents are affluent, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything to me. Uh, this is like 1976, 77 or so. But I think I remember feeling like, uh-oh, this makes me really different than other people I know. And also a little bit of hope like, huh, maybe I won't have to go into debt to go to college or something like that. So I sort of had both horror and hope uh, in my emotional reaction. And and was the horror, did you think people would, um, once they realized it, would that they would not like you as much? Or what were you thinking? Yeah, I think when you're 16, you don't want to necessarily stick out one way or the other. I think I was thinking, oh, because I'd heard that derogatory term, trust fund baby. And uh, there's, there's, there was never anything positive about that association and so I thought, uh-oh, maybe I'm one of those and that's going to warp my world. <laughs> and and instead you made your your world. It is interesting because a lot of people who do inherit wealth, and I'm curious about your philosophy about this, they do actually, they don't feel the hunger or the striving that many ultimately successful people do because they know that they're always taken care of. I mean, this is a broad view. It doesn't apply to everyone, but what's, what what's your general philosophy about family wealth being you know sent to the next generation? Like, if you had money, would you would your kids inherit it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know now that I have three young people in their twenties, you realize well they do need help at certain stages of their life, but it shouldn't be a level of help that alters their trajectory. You know that that each of us need to sort of find our way if we can, uh, and maybe later in life some family help, you know, in your 40s and you're trying to buy a house or try to raise a kid or something, then it maybe makes sense. But never such a large amount that it distorts somebody's own career path. And later in life, ideally, you know, a little bit of help to if you fall off the rails. But, you know, so yeah, I'm actually opposed to the whole idea of big inheritances generally and sort of see how they undermine people's own development and confidence and sort of path 
And uh, I think it's bad for children and it's bad for society. Um, so in that way, I think it's consistent to discourage dynastic wealth accumulations. We'll get to the specific techniques you talk about, about how the, the wealthy hide their wealth and I guess optimize it in ways that would be quite surprising and shocking to, to many people when they hear this. But what's what are some of the things that people, like, okay, let me ask you this question. One time I was talking to a person who ran a huge family office for a very well-known family, like one of the most famous wealthy families you've ever heard of. And he was managing their family office. And you talk a lot about what a family office is in this book, but he said that this family is worth north of a trillion dollars. When you add up all of the members of the family and the wealth, because it's it's four or five generations now, and it's compounded since the 1920s. And people don't realize that there are families like that out there that are worth a tr over a trillion. Like nobody believes me when I, when I tell them this story, but do you believe that? And have you seen similar types of examples? I, I do believe it because even though there's a lot of attention in our society focused on sort of the new tech fortunes, there are these enduring long-term dynastically wealthy families in the United States. And on paper, they may not look as wealthy as we think because, because of the success of this wealth defense industry. They've made it appear this family doesn't uh, own as much wealth, or it's sort of in these masked ownership systems, you know, the, the, the wealth. So I absolutely agree. I mean, I can think now, you know, the DuPont family or the sort of uh, first Gilded Age, some of these wealthy families that, you know, they sort of fly below the radar, the Scripps family, you know, that they, they, they don't come to mind when you think of billionaires today, but in fact, they are thousands of heirs and descendants. Their wealth has increased over time, not diminished. And, I, and so that's completely believable to me. Yeah, because let's let's take as an example the Duponts you just mentioned, and that's not the family I was I was thinking of, but they're a great example. There are thousands of them. E.I. Dupont was like in the early 1800s, and the wealthy, because in part the what you call the wealth defense industry, which I love, um, because of this, this wealth industry that's set up around them, they get better money making opportunities than the average mom and pop retail investor. They, they, the, the DuPonts get, or in any wealthy family, the retail investor can't get into those opportunities. So let's say they're compounding 20% a year, you know, over most of the past 160 years, that compounds into over a trillion, no matter what you start with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually you're making a really important point. These are families, they get into a tier where they're presented you know, they have a lot of wealth, so they have some of that wealth is invested very conservatively and, you know, in, in sort of stable asset classes, if you will. But then they are also being offered these very high return, relatively high risk opportunities. And so there's huge, you know, opportunities to get wealthier and wealthier. And, you know, the old maxim is, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations that, you know, in a functioning democratic society, you you know, the original first generation wealth creator, you know, makes money. The second generation is spending some of that. The third generation, you know, has to go back to work. And that's, you know, that's assuming people are paying taxes. Maybe they're sharing some through charity. They're having children. You know, there's sort of a natural process of dispersal that happens. And what we're seeing is the reverse of that, you know accelerating wealth over generations. And that can only happen because you have this professional uh, group of wealth defense professionals who are arresting the natural process of dispersal and tax payment and propping up and lifting up and increasing those assets. You know, you'll, you'll tell us all the different techniques and, and what goes on behind the scenes. Like you say, there's there's many more people in the wealth defense industry than there are wealthy people. Like this is an entire army of people who set up shelters and trusts and other very secretive ways of, of hiding money. But just one example I'll share is you mentioned a lot of new tech money. Whenever someone sells a company, a lot of it is public information because if they get sold to a public company like Google, it's filed in an SEC filing. As soon as that happens, basically every single ba bank Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, they will call that day all the people involved in the management of that company who made a good amount of money 
and those people, the the new the new wealthy, will be wined and dined for maybe the rest of their lives by wealth <laughs> professionals by an industry they didn't even know existed until that moment, and they will be surprised at what they learn in the meetings that they then have with those people. So I'll just leave it at that. But what? Let's go from the most shocking on down. Like what what happens behind the scenes? Well, you know that that's a great example. So you've, you've your company's just gone public. Uh, your DoorDash or Instacart or you know some some um, you know the, the the first the next thing that'll happen is yeah we we can help you uh, protect these assets. We can help you armor up uh, against you know uh, a, a whole bunch of various threats that might be coming at your wealth litigation and uh, you know ex spouses and. Um, but mostly the tax collector, and we'll we'll start to move some of that money out of your name and into a variety of anonymous shell companies, and we particularly want to put a lot of that money in trusts where, even though you're the beneficiary or your family's the beneficiary, it, we've put these assets into kind of a ownership limbo where no one can actually figure out who really owns these assets for a period of time. And uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll take some of it offshore, but some of that will move into onshore investments that will protect the asset and we'll diversify it. We'll move it all into all kinds of asset classes. We'll put some in art and jewelry and real estate and land and mineral resources, as well as the other market opportunities that are out there. So yeah, the, the first uh, the first step is just to kind of make it look on paper like you don't really have that much money. What's the first step towards doing that? Like, let's say someone clearly has $10 million cash that they got paid for selling a company, say. What would be one of the things that uh, uh, the wealth defense industry or, or like a bank does for that person? Well, we'll kind of lay all the tools uh, uh, in the toolbox on the table and probably use all of them. We'll say, well, let's put some of these funds in uh, these shell companies and some of them will have assets outside the country. Um, we will create dynasty trusts and we'll open up uh, some accounts in South Dakota where you can establish a trust that won't be subject to any oversight for centuries. Well, why is that? Does South Dakota have specific laws? or Yes, yeah, they, they've sort of uh, morphed their state legislation to serve this, this one small industry. Uh, there's no, um, they've suspended what's called the rule against perpetuities, which is something that requires trusts eventually to dissolve. The, the trusts will be able to live forever. Uh, they don't have any income tax or corporate income tax so that the, the trust will never be subject to a tax. They don't even have any reporting requirements and, and they don't have to disclose who the beneficial owners are. So it's a completely locked up kind of form of, of ownership um, that you will never be reporting on your taxes ever again. You know what I mean? So that's that's a really important device. And, and Actually, in the current moment, we're seeing a lot of money moving into those trusts, anticipating the fact that maybe uh, Congress will get around to raising taxes on the rich at some point. How how would you describe a trust? Or, or let, let me give a, a sample version that I know a person who has such a trust. He took his money and he had to give it all to his wife for a period of a certain period of time. So it was no longer his. He could no longer say he had given it to her for X number of months. And then she set up a trust for the kids so that the kids own the trust uh, and all the money is in the trust. But he, the father, the one who originally had the money, he runs the trust until his death and, and has the power to make all decisions on the money in the trust. So the kids own the money. The wife had the money. And so it was out of his hands completely, but he has a hundred percent of the decision-making power on the money until his death. What is his net worth? Technically $0. What is his spending power? Millions. <laughs> You've described it well, James, which is part of what happens is we slice and dice up all these different roles. Uh, so let's say I have a billion dollars and I want to put it in a trust. I am the grantor. I'm creating the trust. But I re may reserve all kinds of rights, including, uh, you know, well, so, so I'm the grantor. You're my beneficiary, James. Someday this money will go to you. And we have a trustee. And I appoint the trustee, and I might even fire that trustee. I can, I have the power to remove that trustee. So, but we've put it into this kind of limbo. It's not really clear. Well, it's not James's money. He doesn't have it yet. It's not my money. I just granted it to the trust. 
It's not the trustee's money. They're just the trustee. They're the sort of minding the store. And that's what muddles the whole dynamic. And, and then people have taken that basic trust structure and they've created all kinds of weird uh, versions of that. You know, their asset protection trusts are what, what some people call selfie trusts, where I'm the grantor and I'm the beneficiary and you're my trustee. Oh, and by the way, don't do anything that I uh, would object to or you're fired as my trustee. And you and I maybe even have a sort of side agreement about how that's going to work. Is that legal, the side agreement? Sure, sure. What It's all, it's all contracts. It's all, nothing, none of this is recorded. None of this is uh, disclosed. The fascinating thing about the history of trusts, uh, and it's sort of an interesting side, is, you know, they're, they're pre-common law. They're pre, uh, you know, Magna Carta. Uh, back in the Crusades, you know, you, you're off. You're heading off to fight in the Crusades, and you weren't sure you would come back. You'd say, uh, "Chuck, you're my, you know, trustee. You're going to take care of my uh, assets, my castle. You're going to mind my estate." Uh, I can't ask my wife to do that since women can't own property. Um, so you're my trustee, and we probably have this nifty blood oath that we sign and papers, and we swear to uphold our honor and this and thing. You go off to the Crusades. And you don't come back, I am the trustee and I will monitor those assets and pass them on to your firstborn son or whatever the understanding you and I have is. Or you do come back, we revoke the trust. We probably have a cool oath for that too. And it goes back to you. Um, or you come back and you've, you've had your bell rung by uh, you know getting a sword clapped over your head and you really aren't in a position to manage the trust. I will remain your trustee, your trusted trustee. So these are like ancient feudal vestiges that are outside the legal system that uh, and, and now they're integral to the legal system, but they were, you know they didn't come up out of you know English common law or you know Napoleonic law or something that you know where we can trace it that way. But now, though, like, let's say there's a trustee, there's a beneficiary, you're the grantor, so you had the money and you want to still somehow maintain control over it. If you have this side agreement with the trustee and the IRS asks you guys directly, hey, are you still in control of this money? You have to kind of tell the truth or else it's perjury of some sort, I would assume. Well, there's sort of where you, you can sort of stand behind the actual legal structure which is, uh, no, I, I, I gave it to the trust. The money is in the trust. It is owned by the trust. I don't mm -hmm. own it anymore. That's the ownership limbo. We've kind of made it fuzzy. Um, but yeah, it's true. The, uh, you know, bill collectors and, you know, will go after these trusts. They'll try to, you know, make the case, okay, you know, that really is Chuck's trust, the trustee, then that's when it's useful that it's in the Cook Islands or in Belize or some offshore jurisdiction where you have to fly to the Cooks Island, which are somewhere, you know, east of New Zealand, and uh, file in person. And by the way, this court system never does anything to change the rules for beneficiaries. So you know, you, you that's where the layering offshore component comes into play. You have a whole country that's devoted itself to protecting these trusts on behalf of global wealth. Is that legal? Like, so I, I guess I don't really know where the borders are, the legal borders are. Like, can someone just take $10 million, put it in a, in, quote unquote, invest it in a company or a trust in the Cook Islands and say, well, I don't have that money anymore. It's, I don't even have access to it. It's in this company in the Cook Islands. I mean, this is what, you know, if you go to these conferences of these wealth defense industry, these trust and estate attorneys, this is what they talk about you know, all day long. Well, how do you, you know, can this trust be broken? Can it be cracked? Can the individuals become responsible parties again? Um, you know, I spent enough time, I'm not a trust lawyer. I, I can't, you know, now we're, we're at the edge of my knowledge, but, you know, what I've come to appreciate is uh, they're trying to bulletproof. They're trying to create ownership forms that cannot be held to account. And that is really what the focus of the industry is. You know, there, there's another interesting aspect too, which is particularly for the the new wealth, is that let's take someone who's uh, the CEO of a newly public company. He's technically or she is not allowed to sell uh, their shares for, let's say, a certain number of years. Uh, related to or part of the wealth defense industry is how to 
take money out of the company without anybody realizing that you've taken money out of the company. Like, you know, there's ways to collar your shares and borrow against that, for instance. Yeah. So do you bump up against that or do you, do you see that a lot? Yeah, I mean, pe- they're, they're yeah, borrowing against shares, uh, purchasing life insurance policies, purchasing other sort of things that will pay out cash in the short term. That's the game. Um, I don't know as much about that, but I'm sure it's a lot of the same skills that are deployed. What are some other techniques that you've seen or, or that have been even egregious? I mean, there's a whole bunch of what you could call transactions. You know, like I'm going to, so we're going to create a fictional company. Uh, we're going to sell assets back and forth to different subsidiaries. We're going to make it look like there's a business transaction that's losing money. This is where people, ought, you know, the, the real estate investment and real estate industry has a whole kind of its own menu of, of tax dodges and ways of obscuring wealth and, uh, you know, making it look like you're losing money when you're actually making money. So um, there's a whole alphabet soup of trusts, grant or retained annuity, annuity trusts or, you know, irrevocable um, defective trusts, you know, all these terms, again, that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, your listeners will turn the dial when they start, when we start going too much into it. It's just, it's complex. And it's, the, the important point here is, it's complex for a reason. This wealth defense industry, complexity is their bread and butter. They're trying to make these impenetrable, you know, they don't want the IRS to understand them. They don't want their clients to understand them. They certainly don't want anybody challenging their authority to understand them. That's why they layer up and lawyer up a lot of these ownership structures. And, uh, you know, so... That's what they're paid to do is obfuscate and make things more complex than they need to be. And is that because, like, it's, this reminds me a little of like cyber hacking in that the attackers are usually much more sophisticated than the defenders uh, for whatever reason. Like the attackers, this is, they're just obsessed with finding every, you know, hole in the system and the defenders can't possibly keep up because they're still fixing the old hacks. So like is... In the wealth defense industry versus IRS war, who 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 would you say is winning? Well, it's it's really the opposite. That the so-called attackers in this case are completely outgunned, decimated in their oversight capacity, uh, hollowed out in terms of the ranks of people who have the skills to follow the money and unravel these arrangements, and that is entirely um, intentional. And I should say, one thing that the wealth defense industry does on behalf of their clients is they obviously um, defend the wealth, but they also are engaged in the sort of lobbying, rule writing, discouraging oversight, attacking the IRS, lobbying for, you know, and, and, and here we are in this time where the concentration of wealth over the last 15 years has, has grown, the, the share of wealth in the top one-tenth of one percent has grown, and the oversight body, the Internal Revenue Service, has just been decimated. Uh, And particularly what they used to call the rich squad, the people who sort of had the skills to be able to unfollow all of these schemes, you know. We have to reverse that. Actually, part of my, what a recommended solution is, you have to beef up the cops on the beat. You have to beef up enforcement um, so that, uh, you know, in order to shut down some of these, the worst of these abuses. Um, and right now we're totally in the opposite They're They're completely outgunned. And uh, what, what about charitable trusts? Like what's the deal with those? So somebody wants to um, not, let's say they get new money or old money or they inherit money and they donate it all to charity in the form of their own charity. They set up a charitable trust. That's really, they become a charity that becomes tax-free. What, what, what's the deal with those? That, that's really the main way I think of when I think of tax avoidance yeah, or you know, when I think of people doing it. Yeah, it's a whole other category, but it's an important one. You know, we think of charitable foundations, charitable trusts as, oh, these are people who are giving their money away to a qualified charity. But actually, you can set up these charitable trusts where, you know, maybe a portion of the revenue goes to charity, but the asset uh, passes on and is part of, part of the individual legacy. Um, so yeah, people use these so-called charitable trusts and usually there's some money that leaves, flows out the door to a qualified charity, but it could be a very minuscule 
portion. It's it's just another flavor of tax avoidance. And then, you know, actually we should just say people use their private foundations and donor-advised funds. You know, they are giving up the money in that case. They're receiving even a tax reduction because they're giving to a foundation that they that control. But then the money is warehoused. You know, it's sitting there, you know, if, if, if I put my wealth into a donor-advised fund at Fidelity, I get my tax break, I've reduced my taxes, now that money can sit there forever. There's no requirement that the money move on to a qualified charity. The, the, you know, here we're seeing this in this pandemic. You know, some people have obviously stepped up and shared their money and, you know, have funded all kinds of a meaningful COVID relief kind of stuff. But there's still a system where billions, uh, in this case, probably about $1.2 trillion is just sitting warehoused in private foundations and donor-advised funds with very little mandate that that money leave and go to the food bank or the qualified charity. So it's another way to maintain your power and influence is you create this private foundation. You statutorily have to give away 5% a year. Oh, but by the way, that 5% includes your overhead, and that includes hiring all your kids at a salary to run the foundation. You know, so it's another, and you saw this with the Trump, the the the, the Trump empire. You know, how did how did Donald Trump's father pass on four hundred million dollars to his son? You know, without any taxes, they used a whole bunch of these techniques to transfer money, um, and these are all so-called perfectly legal because the wealth defense industry has written the laws, written the rules to make them legal, and fended off any kind of oversight and and changes to the rules. And I guess the rules or or the ideas change so fast, it's hard to keep up with it. Like, let's say, I, I don't know exactly what happened with, in the Trump story, but let's say Donald Trump had set up a company and his his father, Fred Trump, just invested in it. And that was a way of transferring $400 million over. Then it's a gray area. Like, that's sort of legal. And it's not really a gift. It's a company, technically, that Donald Trump might be the only shareholder of. I'm just using them as an example. I don't know if that's what happened. How do you kind of get past, there's so many gray areas, it's sort of hard to unveil it. Yeah. One fix to that is transparency. So you basically say, look, corporations have to disclose who their beneficial owners are. And then there are certain transactions that only exist for the purposes of tax avoidance. You just ban or outlaw these transactions. And there is a little bit of whack-a-mole aspect to that because you got this wealth defense industry that's over here highly motivated to keep creating new ownership forms, new transactions, new tax dodges. But that's where you, you know, you got to always have the cops on the beat. You got to have uh, an oversight agency that can kind of keep ahead and stay on top of all, all these things. That's where your, your hacker uh, security system dynamic is true. The hackers are always going to be finding the weak links. The wealth defense industry is always going to be creating new weak links at this point, there's so much imbalance in the system that taxes are optional, really, for the super-rich. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb. 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. A whole other category is people who have wealth who are coming into the country and maybe they got their wealth through corrupt means. And what's a technique for them? Like how do they ever clean their money enough to, to come into this country? Because there's all, there's all this know your customer laws now since 9-11. Yeah, um, and actually what what uh, your wealth defense industry, you know, let's say you're a dictator and you've stolen money from your own people and you 
you know, your time may be up and you're trying to get your money out of your country, um, you first you'll take it to some jurisdiction that that has a weak banking sector that doesn't have a know your customer set of rules. You'll launder it through, you know, a bank account there. You'll create some shell companies. Eventually, you'll bring it to the United States because the U.S. has a huge, you know, a lot of advantages for just parking and investing in stable resources. You'll probably at some point create a Delaware limited liability company that has no disclosure requirements. So you'll bring that money onshore and you'll probably launder it through real estate. You'll buy a bunch of luxury condominiums in New York and L.A. and other places. Uh, That will be a way in which, you know, five years later you sell some of those assets and now that money is perfectly laundered, and you can even start to purchase things in your own name, God forbid, should you want to. Um, so that's that's how, in a way, the U.S. has become the destination for kleptocratic capital from around the world now, because we are the weak link. We've, we have the worst uh, reporting standards, the least transparency now of many industrialized countries. What about Switzerland? What's the deal with them? What's their role in this? Well, it used to be that the Swiss bank account was kind of the 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 perfect place to put your money where you would never have to disclose it. But what happened in the in the, you know, 2005, 2006 were all these leaks. A bunch of Swiss bankers uh leaked data about all the US customers, US clients that were uh hiding money in Swiss bank accounts. These were people who worked in the industry and just said, "Uh, oh, there's something wrong with this. This is awful." And uh, and under the Obama administration, uh, they negotiated a treaty with Switzerland that said, "Look, if you're you, you need to tell us when U.S. customers come to Switzerland, you have to disclose." And then the European countries started to have country by country agreements on the same terms. You need to tell us so that so the whole idea of the the anonymous Swiss bank account is now doesn't really exist anymore uh, for people whose wealth comes from mostly the European and industrialized countries. Um, so that's why you bring your money to the U.S. now. You forget the Swiss bank account, create your anonymous shell company here in the U.S. Uh, that then has bank accounts um, in various offshore banking centers. So that that the Swiss bank account is no longer the plum you know, just like the Thomas Crown Affair and all those movies, you know, you don't take your suitcase of cash to Switzerland anymore. You take it to uh, New York. And and then what happens? So you go to New York, you go to, and you have this great story of someone faking being from another country, potentially corrupt, and he goes to like all these different law firms and they all give him advice and he's got a secret camera or recording it. Like, what, what was that story? Well, yeah, this is a great uh, 60 Minutes expose. Uh, they had somebody pretending to be representing a, you know, a dictator from a mineral-rich country that uh, was trying to move pretty clearly illicit funds. Now there were, you know, all kinds of red flags that that he brought to these meetings. But he 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 met with maybe seventeen different lawyers. Had the had the secret camera running, including the at the time the head of the American Bar Association. Uh, there was only one lawyer in this group who said, "Sorry, this this smells bad. Uh, I can't help you. You got to leave my office." The rest of them were kind of just like, "Hey, okay, we can help you with this. You know, we we can uh, provide soup to nut services." Yeah. Well, first we got to move that money. We got to launder it through some, you know, bank banks and countries that don't have these rigorous banking disclosure laws. Uh, here's a list of those companies and those banks. Here's, you know, we can help you with this. That was essentially the response. And because of the whole notion of uh, client-attorney privilege, uh, lawyers do not have to, let, unlike banker, a, a banker, if this, if you went into a bank and, bank and said this, they would be obliged under the current laws to uh, file a report saying this is a suspicious activity report, a SAR. And, uh, and you know, thousands of these reports are filed every year, um, many of them don't really get followed up with. But that's how the banks cover their own behinds is by they file this report. Okay, now we'll help you. Uh, and then that's alerts the Treasury Department and law enforcement that maybe at some point you might want to look into this. Whereas lawyers don't have to do that. Consultants don't have to do that. You know, uh, If you're um, McKenzie or a Boston consulting group, uh, you don't have to disclose red flag transactions. 
Uh, so here are all these lawyers who are just like, we can help you. We're happy to help. This is what we do. And is that, that that's legal? So like if you, you're essentially, if you're a lawyer doing that, though, aren't you aiding and abetting a crime? Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, you can't knowingly, but there's so many ways that this activity sort of skirts the law, dances along the law. I mean, if that client came to you and said, well, yeah, we stole this money and we need to uh, launder it. Oh, they, oh, well, I guess we, we can't really do business with you. But if you just say, oh, my client has a lot of money and he'd like to invest it in the United States, uh, but first we have to uh, move it into some anonymous ownership, they'll be like, yeah, we can help you with that. There's no, you know, there's no red flag criminal activity there. Um, in the case, of, however, of this 60 Minutes expose, it was really clear that there was suspicious activity. What, what was he saying? Oh, he's saying, well, yeah, my client... Uh, effectively has accepted a lot of payments from third-party governments to uh, have access to the resources of the country. And uh, those third-party payments, we've just put them in a bank account in another country. And now we'd like to bring, you know, bring it out from the shadows, bring it to the United States. We'd like to purchase a yacht. We'd like to purchase some, you know, a brownstone in Brooklyn. We'd like to purchase uh, some land in Montana. So how can you help us do that, you know? But it was clear that the money came for bribery. And in the case of dynastic wealth, so actually, can you tell the listeners like how did your family make money? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm the great grandson of the meatpacker Oscar Meyer. Uh, we I would I would characterize us as not really in the dynastic category, meaning we we kind of fulfill the description of you know over time, uh, you know, the family business ownership transfers and whatever wealth there's there is kind of spread out over the generational line. Um, but what I did was I did get a kind of insight into how these trusted advisors, you know, work and how they help families, you know, create trusts. Um, and then I really got, a, when I moved to New England, I really got a window into old wealth and how families do build up these sort of wealth dynasties over the generations. And I would consider kind of dynastic wealth families, you know, that, you know, 30 million or more, or, you know, 250 million or more, then then it sort of is worth your trouble to have a family office, which is kind of where you bring these wealth defense services in-house instead of going out and hiring lawyers and financial planners and wealth managers. You, you bring all those people under one roof and they work for you. And so you can enforce non-disclosures and all kinds of kind of provisions that protect your privacy in whatever activities happening in that family office. You might even bring your charitable activity under that or if it becomes your kind of soup to nuts money management office. And, you know, there's nothing inherently diabolical about family offices. It's just a, a vehicle, but central to their purpose is wealth preservation and transfer to the next generation. Uh, what I would call dynastic succession. How do you grow the wealth and how do you pass it down the bloodline and keep it in the family? And inherent in that is minimizing and avoiding taxes and using all these tools in the toolbox to perpetuate and expand wealth. Like when you first inherited money from your family's trust, I guess, or family office, were there any uh, estate tax taxes involved or was it or was that completely avoided like 100 years ago? Uh, well, it came in the form of a trust, which probably, yeah, was under the, you know, was uh, established prior to, um, you know, or below the threshold of the estate tax at the time. Uh, and, you know, people create these generation skipping trusts, so they create, uh, or they take money uh, every year, put it into the trust using the, annual exclusion from a gift and estate tax. So, you know, good trust planning is very much toward the purpose of, you know, okay, we're going to pass wealth on to the kids that is untaxed or uh, has um, avoided taxes or is, or is legally, you know, the, the minimum get the, the, the maximum annual gift has gone into this trust and people start you know, literally the day a child is born starting to, you know, setting up trusts, and putting aside the maximum qualified gift so that you know by the time the child is 30 there's there's quite a treasure trove there and when and for you when you were 25 and you first 
um, were, were given some of the money from these, from these trusts, you gave a substantial amount away. You gave a half a million to charity. What, what was the reaction of your family? Well, I had, uh, kind of prepared them for this possibility. Uh, you know, my, uh, by first just thanking them for the opportunities. I mean, the reality is they went through the trouble to, you know, pass this wealth on and I didn't want to be ungrateful. I basically said, look, uh, this is, you know, I've, I've, I've been given these tremendous opportunities. I'm most thankful for them. Uh, now I kind of want to pass the gift along. You know, I feel like I'm well prepared to make my way in, in the, in life. And that, that was, that was true. I mean, we, money is just part of the bundle of privileges when you grow up, you know, as I did fourth generation in a, you know, successful manufacturing company or whatever. Uh, there's all kinds of other things, advantages that, that flow my way, uh, of which the money was just one. So, you know, I, my family was maybe concerned. I remember, uh, you know, some, one of my parents was concerned that, you know, maybe I had been brainwashed by some kind of cult or something, you know, but they, so they checked that out and they realized, no, he's, he's okay. Uh, he's just, uh, has a particular peculiar political concern about inherited wealth. Uh, so they, they're they quite supportive over the, over in the short term and long term. Oh, that's good. And, um, and you've since given away, I mean, you've, 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 you've been involved in a lot of different philanthropy efforts. I, I'm actually, when I, in my mid twenties, gave away the, uh, the assets that I had. So, uh, you know, and, and I did that for a variety of reasons, but I, I thought, you know, I just didn't really want to benefit in any way from a system of inherited wealth that where, you know, I, I just knew so many people who worked so hard and had no savings. And here I was, you know, just showing up or, you know, picking, picking the right parents or whatever, picking my parents and getting a free lottery ticket, you know? So that just seemed like, mm, I don't really want to be the beneficiary of that kind of system. So, uh, you know, I still give money that I earn away, but it's, uh, has fewer zeros on the checks. So it's interesting because I would say about 40 years ago, the Forbes list of richest individuals, you know, all the richest billionaires in the country was made up mostly of people who had inherited money. Um, that was more than half or was the majority of people. And then it became people who were like in the financial industry, like hedge fund managers or bankers or whatever. And now it's the technology uh, you could almost call them oligarchs for the amount of money that they have is, you know, a hundred billion dollars or, mm. or more in some cases. Do you think that's a good, I mean, that seems like a good direction that it's moving from, it is increasing income inequality, but it, the the shade of income inequality is, ch is changing. What, what do you think of, are there nuances there that are interesting? It's really interesting. And you're, you're absolutely right, James. You know, so if you looked at the Forbes list in 1983, when they started at 82, uh, you, you saw a lot of, you know, the DuPonts and the Gettys and the Cokes and the Mars and some of these, you know, second, third generation wealthy families. Uh, today, Forbes actually does a little spectrum score, what they call the, I think it's the self, you know, how much of that wealth is, uh, you know, self-created, first generation, how much is inherited. So they actually, you know, give you the you know, so if you're a Philip Atschall or somebody like that, they say, well, you know, Philip Anschultz, they say, oh, you know, he uh, he's made a lot of that money, but, you know, he actually did inherit a million dollars. Well, not a bad head start in life, you know. So he's maybe a three or four on the self, self-made self list, you know. Um, it, yeah, in some ways it's good that there aren't these dynasties. But here's what I've noticed is those dynasties still exist. They're just not on the Forbes list. Uh, in fact, Forbes last December did their um, their wealthiest fifty family dynasty list, and five years ago they did their wealthiest two hundred families in America. And what you realize these are enduring uh, dynasties of wealth. They're just not on the billionaire list, you know, because the the top tier, the top, you know, let's say six hundred. It's now like seven hundred billionaires. Um, Probably the majority of them are startups, first generation high tech, you know, and easily traceable. And and we know, yeah, we know that you know what those companies are. We know what their stock values are. You can sort of monitor it. Whereas some of these families are like they're still privately, you know, the Cokes and the Mars, the Mars Candy Empire. These are still private family companies. Um, they never went public. 
we frankly don't know all of what people are worth, you know? And they're enduring, enduring wealth dynasties. Well, what also fascinates me is that a lot of times the way Forbes measures it is, oh, here's so-and-so, he owns X percent of this company that's public and this is all publicly disclosed, so he must be worth, you know, 20% of 100 billion, so he's worth 20 billion. But obviously they've been investing also, or the families have been investing, and that there's no, there's clearly no disclosure rules about that. There's no SEC for however your investment's been doing. And so we don't know anything about these third, fourth, fifth generation, even second generation families. Because for all we know, they invested in Uber and that's where the bulk of their wealth comes from now. But we have no idea of knowing that. Yep. I mean, that is part of, you know, these are, you know, privately managed, privately managed wealth. Um, And, and then there's this, you know, there's the, what do we know wealth? And then there's the, what do we don't know wealth? And I would, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, some of that, we don't know a lot. I mean, the estimate of hidden wealth globally is somewhere between 24 and $36 trillion uh, of wealth. That's like 10 to 12% of the world's wealth is not on the ledger. It's, it's hidden. Uh, we don't know about it. The, the, the way we know about that estimate is thanks to leaks Thanks to divorces where, you know, the sort of window opens up and you sort of see, oh, the Pritzkers, you know, have this, these kind of holdings. Um, and they, and because of the tax gap, you, you know, why is it that <laughs> if we have a, a tax on inheritances and in estates in the United States, why is the revenue so low? It's because huge amounts of that money aren't being measured and aren't being taxed. So, we can kind of backfill and figure out and estimate, guesstimate how much wealth is hidden, but we don't know for specific individual families uh, just how much they really, really have. That's a really important point here in this whole thing is I think the level of inequality is much greater than we actually think, and it's already pretty extreme. Well, I remember reading like when after Hosni Mubarak passed away, he was the president of Egypt, that he had given his son a contract and I could be wrong. And if so, whatever, but I remember reading, he'd given his son a contract to rebuild all the roads in Egypt and for billions and billions of dollars. And let's say that's just one deal of many that he had done with his children or friends or family. And then all these people are billionaires and transferring their money through all these different means. I, I would guess that there's, like you say, there's, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of wealthy people out there who we just have no clue. Like, you know, the, the reported list of billionaires is about 1,700 billionaires in the U.S. My guess is there might be something like twenty or 30,000 billionaires in the U.S. We just don't know. And then, yeah, put it at the global level, it gets even more untransparent. I mean, how much wealth does Vladimir Putin have? Well, I always argue that, that like Russia is one big hedge fund and he's <laughs> the general partner. Right. So he basically makes 20% of the profits of all of Russia. Yeah. And where is that money and how will it eventually pay out to his benefit or the benefit of his his family or whatever. I mean, we know we get little windows again, uh, thanks to leaks. You know, the, the Isabel de Santos, who's the sort of wealthiest woman in Africa. Uh, her father was, you know, the president of Angola for you know a couple decades. She just as you described, got all kinds of contracts and sweetheart deals to develop different aspects of the country. Money was ferried out of the country thanks to help with. Pricewaterhouse Cooper and Boston Consulting and a bunch of other firms that helped, uh, you know, supposedly build these ventures, but also move money out of the country. And then somebody leaked all these transactions, and lo and behold, two billion dollars siphoned away from Angola, which is a mineral-rich, uh, prosperous country where the the wealth of the people has been plundered. There are we know, you know, hundreds of those stories um, where, you know, the vast treasure, we think of, you know, oh, this country is, this country's impoverished. You know, they don't have much money. The people are poor. Well, if the money hadn't been plundered, they'd be a lot less poor. They'd be a lot more prosperous. Yeah, look at Venezuela and Nigeria, two huge oil countries yeah. that make, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And they're also among the poorest populations. So where does the money go? Like it comes, and like you said before, the U.S. is the, actually the biggest tax haven. It comes here. And so here's an interesting question. 
for the countries where it goes to, and the U.S. being the biggest beneficiary of that, are there ancillary benefits to the U.S. itself in the sense that this money ends up in a U.S. bank, which means the banks then lend it out for housing loans and so people can own homes and it keeps mortgage rates low because there's such a great, uh, huge supply of, of money from this. Is there, and then of course, when you borrow money from a U.S. bank, it gets spent into the economy. There's a kind of velocity of money concept in economics that $1 in the economy is actually worth $10 of spending. So do you think there's some kind of ancillary benefit to the U.S., to the growth of the U.S. economy as money gets siphoned off here? And I know this is sort of a weird question that something bad could have good benefits, but that's, there's always nuances like that I'm curious about. Well, clearly there are people who work in the wealth defense industry who have jobs, you know, if you're, uh, you know, working a trust company in South Dakota, uh, you could either be, you know, a wildcat fracker or you, you're you working in some dynasty trust company. So there are people who, uh, <laughs> it's not a lot else driving the economy there. So, so yeah, there's some, there are some jobs. The, the interesting debate, uh, James, on this topic is around luxury real estate. So here's all this money, global cash, touching down in our local real estate markets. Well, they're building buildings, so there's jobs in the building trades. Uh, there are service jobs in this, what they euphemistically call the service-rich lifestyle, which is another way of saying servants. There's jobs there uh, when when the people are in town. Um, and there's, you know, real estate taxes. Well, some of this luxury real estate actually spins off and, pour, you know, money goes to the city of Boston, the city of... And I saw this in Boston. I, I you know, live in Boston, and I watched these these towers rising up and realizing no one's living there, but they're paying a lot of property taxes and the city would sort of justify that. And so, yeah, there, there are these benefits to the fact that global capital is touching down in our economies and uh, some people are benefiting from that. There's some dangers of that. I mean, uh, we have these acute housing crises uh, there's all this vacant property, whether it's Los Angeles or, you know, Boston. There are all these vacant shell companies. They're, they're, they're taking up a lot of resources. They're taking up land, uh, building resources, energy, all for creating these sort of luxury, sort of safe deposit box in the sky. There, there, there's another uh, down. There's a bunch of downsides, uh, but maybe there are a few upsides, if you will, to being the center of global capital. So clearly if you're the Cayman Islands, you think there must be some benefit because you've essentially sold your sovereignty off to attract this money. Yeah, like you could you could sell citizenship essentially. Yeah. Well, people do sell citizenship. You can get you can buy a passport. You can also just buy an anonymous account and uh, they're happy to take your money and have this tiny little wealth defense industry on the island benefit, and they, they, I'm sure they pay off their political sponsors quite well. So what, what would be, in the U.S., if you were in charge, what would be the first three rules you would make to prevent some of this from happening? Well, first I'd invest in enforcement, so that's, not, that's just getting people to obey the existing rules. Um, I would probably outlaw certain kinds of trusts and transactions that have no purpose other than tax dodging. I would require corporations to have the library card level of disclosure, meaning you have to say who you who the beneficial owner is and where they live. Uh, when, you, when you get a library card, James, you go to your public library, you know, they say, so who are you and where do you live? And you say, no, I'm not going to tell you that. They're like, well, we're not going to lend you any books, you know, because how do we know you're going to return them? You won't even tell us who you are. So, uh, and, and actually, and then I would say that the, the next important thing is then to join the family of nations, starting with the UK, because the UK and the US are kind of like, the, we created this system, if you will, um, and have a lot of leverage and power globally to fix it, is to enter into treaties with other industrialized countries to have Disclosure, have transparency, outlaw certain kinds of transactions, take it to the global level uh, and start with the UK and start with the European Union. Uh, we could shut down this hidden wealth system in, in, in a couple of years. Um, so, and I should say, I think we're on our way there. You know, Congress passed something called the Corporate Transparency Act at the end of last year, 
requiring corporations to disclose beneficial ownership, circumventing states like Delaware. Uh, they have to report it to the Treasury Department. But there's a bunch of loopholes. Trusts are not included, partnerships, private equity. But we can fix that. We, we need to close up the loopholes and make this law apply to all these different ownership entities. Uh, and the reason that passed and the Trump signed it is because it was a big coalition. It was law enforcement. It was people who care about tax fairness. Um, you know, it was the real estate industry saying, hey, we have to have some integ- restore some integrity to this corrupt system. Um, so, you know, I think there are the, the other positive thing, there's, there's kind of cracks in the system. The people who work in the wealth defense industry, not all of them are happy. Uh, some of them are leaking data. Some of them are defecting and helping people like me figure out how do you change the system. So I think once a system starts to crack, it can unravel fairly quickly. Hmm. Well, Chuck Collins, author of The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. What a great subtitle. I usually don't like subtitles, but How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions is a very good uh, subtitle. Thanks for what you do and for coming on the show and sharing all this with us. Thanks for this terrific conversation. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.